Welcome listeners to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love hosted by Richard Osler. Um, on our podcast, joining us from um, Arkansas, where she lives, is my friend Jesse Duncan. Welcome to the podcast, Jesse. Thanks, Richard. So glad to be here. Um, Jesse and I have been cha- trading emails, and um, I'm going to read a little bit from her email just to give you kind of the 40,000-foot level. Um, I was raised in the church in Arkansas where my parents were some of the first black members in the area. I attended BYU. I served a mission in New York City speaking Spanish where I gained spiritual strength, courage, and resilience. Um, We have four kids, two with special needs, and one who passed away at the age of four from leukemia. His name is Benjamin. I recently completed three years as Relief Society president for our bilingual ward, and I'm now serving in my favorite calling, a nursery leader. Now, that may have changed because this is six months ago. Are you still the nursery leader, Jesse? I am no longer in my favorite calling. I now <laughs> teach gospel doctrine. Well, no comment. <laughs> that is, you're moving around. Yes. Um, I fight for my testimony daily. I thought that was really good. I am an intense... I. Um, a court-appointed special advocate for foster children. So I love that you have this. Um, I think some of those might even be sex trafficked people, and you're working hopefully to take the LSAT and go to law school. Jesse's husband, who's gay, was on episode 486, Braden Duncan. We kind of talked about Jesse in that podcast for those of you that listened, and um, your husband, Braden, had lots of good things to say about you. Um, and we think I said in that podcast, Jesse was going to be on the podcast at a future date, and that's now happening. So listeners, I think this will be, um, I will learn, I hope to learn things from Jesse about how to support Black Latter-day Saints, how to support people who have lost a child, how to support people in a mixed orientation marriage, how to support people that may not fit the mold with some of the things that are important to you and help us create Zion. And so we said a prayer before we started, and this is a remarkable, courageous, faithful woman who probably moves us a little bit, I think, and is willing to be honest and challenge us as we grow and become a more Zion-like people. And so I like to feel uncomfortable a little bit sometimes because it helps me realize the changes I need to make in my own life and maybe some racism and sexism that I haven't fully identified that I need to hear stories to help me be- do better. So is that okay for an introduction, Jesse? <laughs> yes, thanks, Richard. Um, if you want to feel uncomfortable, you came to the right place. <laughs> <Good>. um, <laughs> there's not very many people who would say that I'm an easy person. But um, first, I just wanted to thank you for the work that you do. Um here uh, with people's stories um, when I think for a lot of bereaved families, especially ones that lose children, we actually one of the steps of grief that they talk about in recovery, recovery, not that you recover from grief, but is um, finding a cause. A lot of bereaved parents find a cause. For instance, if your child died from cancer, you might raise money for childhood cancer groups or do walks for cancer awareness or things like that. Um, And as I kind of got to a stage in my grief after Ben died, where I was looking for, because you look look for a lot of meaning in life, 
I was trying to figure out what my cause should be, I guess. And as I thought of our son, um, he just connect deeply connected with people. He was only four, but he was a very um, astute four-year-old. <laughs> and um, and so I thought my cause from that, I thought my cause is humanity. Like my like if something hurts you deeply, then it hurts me deeply. Um, and we have tried as a family to participate in things, including how I'm working as a court appointed advocate for, for foster kids. Like we try to see a need and for it to become our need. And I feel like that's kind of from what I've seen of and heard from what you do, kind of the way that you minister as well, um, because it's not about like what I'm interested in or what impacted me so much as there's something impacting everybody. And if we can see that and feel it, then we really can get closer to Zion than we can if we just try to lift our own um, issue. And so I appreciate what you do. I just wanted to start with that. You're very kind, Jesse. And you said a, a phrase, a sentence I wrote down, my cause is humanity. Um, that's really cool. It seems like that's Jesus's cause too. So um, that's really <laughs> well, cool. Well, I really, I really feel like the humanness and the struggle and that like, I remember as a missionary, you know, you're what, <laughs> I was 21 completely like just, you know, I didn't know. I mean, I lived, I was raised, born and raised in a very functional two-parent household, lived in the same city, same house for most of my life. And I was connecting with these people. I served in New York, New York, Spanish speaking. And I was, so I was, I was working with a lot of recently, recent immigrants, many of whom did not have papers and or legal, their legal situation was very precarious. And many of whom had left, I worked with a lady who had left her kids at home with her husband and had not been back to see them for 15 years and, um, and just sent money to them um, because of how precarious her situation was. Um, and so I'm just completely naive. <laughs> trying to like I'm teaching about life and I know nothing about life right and um one of the saving things for me and for everybody obviously it was the atonement because and I've experienced this also as a mom um my kids have have had a sibling die and I have not experienced that and so I can't speak to that but if I can connect with Christ through the, his atonement, he can make it real to me. And I can minister in ways that matter to people who have situations that I can't comprehend, but only because he can comprehend it. And therefore I can use his atonement to help me minister. Um, but that's the only way I, and I don't always do that <laughs> well, perfectly or well. Um, a lot of times I try to do it myself. Um, so, and I think I probably will continue bumping into that same wall and relearning that same lesson just over and over again. <laughs> Hopefully I'll get faster at learning it at least, but. <laughs> I love that. Keep sharing your story, Jesse. <laughs> um, 
So I wanted to, I want to talk, start out just talking a little bit about my childhood and family heritage, just because that's an important part of who I am and the ways that I experience and process things. Um, I did want to, um, sorry, uh, sorry, I have a lot of notes and I'm like, do I really want to start there? Yeah. Okay. We're going to start there. Okay. <laughs> um, so I've been struggling a lot. I'm rich. Like Richard said, he and I have been emailing back and forth for several months now, just trying to coordinate and, um, this podcast, people come on and share their story. And I have struggled even with the concept of a story. Like, how do you share your story? Like my, like, what is your story? And, um, also, my mom has a master's degree and teaches English. So a story has a beginning, a middle, and an end, has a climax, a resolution, hero, a villain. <laughs> um, occasionally, it has a plot twist, but it like it's like it's supposed to feel good. <laughs> at least at the end, maybe not in the middle, but at least at the end, and. I personally have wanted to burn books that I read all the way through and the end was not comforting. Um, so I'm kind of hesitant to share my story because it's because I'm in the middle of it and it does not have a tidy ending um, with a bow on top like we often, I think in Western society, in Christian culture, and then on top of that, in LDS culture, um, would like for our stories to prove our point, or to show that we were right, or to show that God blesses people who keep his commandments, and that they get whatever they want, <laughs> or whatever. Um, and my story definitely is not that story. Um, that's not how my life has gone. Um, so. So it's hard to share a story that 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 is that for me I feel like is not really even a story, um, and that is still ongoing, and where sometimes um, I feel like because of some of the unfortunate things in my life, I have not been in control of my story as much as I would have liked to have been. And um, that's not how stories are supposed to go. So that, that was... caveat, this is <laughs> this is a story in the works. And um, but I was, as Richard said, I know I know he said Arkansas. I'm not sure if he said where, but I my name's Jesse Duncan. I was born and raised in Little Rock, Arkansas. So I am Southern through and through. Fry all the things for me. That's what I like. Um, and I um, have an older brother, Harold, who is very um, enterprising and friendly. Like he's very social and just super fun. He is 10 months older than me. And so we were in the same grade all growing up. And for two months every year, we're the same age. So like this year, what? It's September. We're the same age right now. <laughs> in August, I turned 40. And then October, he'll turn 41. So when I was little, 
I kept waiting for the day that I would get to be older. Like, because we would be the same age and then he'd get older and then we'd be the same age and then he'd get older. And so no one broke it to me. And I think I finally figured it out by myself, probably at an embarrassingly late age that I was never going to be older than him. So, (laughs) so that was very frustrating. Um, And then I have two younger sisters, Sarah and Leslie. Um, Leslie is creative and fierce and very independent. Um, She lives near Vegas. And then my little sister, Sarah, just moved to DC and she is um, dependable and kind and basically a genius and just, um, such a good example to me. Um, and so we were raised by my parents, Harold and Lenise, who, um, just, who came from situations that were not ideal and, um, but you wouldn't have known it by the ways that we were raised. Um, my mom was raised by various relatives at different times. Um, her mom was not very much in the picture. Um, and her dad was, they, they all just were not, she didn't have a really consistent adult is what I guess I should say. And so she took on a lot of responsibility as a kid and was kind of an adult, And then my dad, um, his dad um, uh, disappeared in a military training accident over the Great Lakes when he was, I think, 15 months old. And so neither of them, my dad did not have, was raised without a dad. My mom was raised in various ways. And so um, Neither of them had like that ideal home. And I think because of that, they were very intentional in making sure that we had that um, and that we had very consistent parents and home life and um, relationships were very important to my mom. So she was very, very intentional, even though people had not been consistent for her. She became that person even for some of the people who were not consistent for providing care for her. I remember every Saturday morning, she would call the whole roster of relatives and catch up and talk to them. Um, she, she still to this day calls my step granddad, who's her stepdad and who did not raise her. She didn't wasn't in the household with him. And like the other day she was like, Oh, I just got off the phone after four hours of talking to him. Like, so she was very intentional and still is very intentional in creating these types of bonds and relationships. Um, and in my world, women, black women, and this sounds foreign, <laughs> but black women ruled the world. Like they were the cool. power and the um, consistency and the um, like, I just, I have aunts, I have cousins, I have my grandmothers and my mom, and they just were all powerful. And um, I felt like they would not let anything bad happen to me. Um, And they, and I think I think this is definitely a cultural thing. 
they did not need men. Like they did not need somebody to define them by being married or being um, a mom or wife. They were moms and wives, but they also, they were looking for a partner to compliment them, not somebody to complete them. And so that was very much the way that I experienced life. Um, if they were married, they were equal partners or possibly ahead of the other partner <laughs> on occasion, but um, they were definitely not um, submissive or voiceless. Um, and, and so that definitely impacted my own way of um, walking in the world. Um, my grandma, my dad's mom that raised him because his dad died, um, was, she was a lot like my sister, Leslie. She was very intense and, and she was born in the 1930s in Arkansas, got a master's degree, wow. taught like she just, and she experienced a lot of racism and a lot of resistance, but that's, was just a part of her story, not the deciding factor for her. Um, she was an epic cook. <laughs> she would invite numerous people. She invited us. She was not a member of the church, but she would invite the missionaries over and us and a myriad of relatives over for dinners, for holidays especially. And you were, she, like, she would not let you bring anything basically because she didn't trust you to do it well enough. And so, <laughs> so, um, and we would go and she would have smothered chicken, rice, mashed potatoes, scalloped potatoes, dressing, cornbread, rolls, salad, green beans, greens, cabbage. Like it was, I mean, like a buffet, like she had worked for days preparing these huge meals. Um, as she got older and closer to um, when she passed away, she would let us frost a cake or slice vegetables for a salad or something. But she just was, I remember um, she had been in the, right before she died, she was in the hospital and had gotten released from the hospital and was home. I called her and asked her if I could bring her something for dinner. It was the day she'd gotten home from the hospital. And she's like, oh no, I already got hungry. So I just went in and um, made myself some, some dinner and I questioned her about it. She had made herself chicken quarters and dressing and she, my grandma didn't realize never found out, I guess, that there's canned vegetables and frozen vegetables. <laughs> so she had like totally um, prepped string beans from scratch and made cornbread to then crumble to make dressing. Like she had made gravy and chicken quarters and all this stuff for her little meal the day she got home from the hospital and she wasn't even supposed to be out of bed. Um, that's just, yeah, that was how she was. And then my great grandma, who did a lot of my mom's raising on my mom's side, who we called Gramoni, she was born because her name was Wyoni. And so Gramoni is what we called her. She was born in 1910 in rural Arkansas. And just, um, I mean, she saw two world wars. She saw so many changes over time. And even, I mean, like, I can't even imagine the technological advances she witnessed unreal um and so she um she never learned to drive but she did 
put on her wig and hat and walk to church every Sunday. Um, and she was solid. She was steady. She was witty, um, sarcastic. <laughs> um, she, and she, um, I love her. She died right before my 21st birthday. So I knew her well. I mean, we spent the night there all the time. She babysat me and my brother and she was 94 or it was right before her 94th birthday. And she, um, I, her husband had died. I'm trying to remember when Papa died. I never met him. So he had been dead maybe 40 years by then. And my grandma, Rara, um, her husband died when my dad was 15 months old. She never remarried. Um, so I was with these women that were just carrying the load and that didn't really, um, like I said, it was more of a, just, uh, uh, there was, there was safety in womanhood. We did not need to borrow safety from men. Um, we could create it for ourselves. Um, and so, um, one thing that has been really cool is recently in the last like year or two doing family history, we were able to find out, uh, my great grandma knew her, um, grandma that was enslaved mm-hmm. and who died when she was 10. And, um, she, but we didn't know anything past her. And recently my mom and I had, were looking at records and found a last will and testament of their owner, the slave owner that owned them. And he was willing her and her mom and her sister and the man that she eventually married to his nephew if he died. And so in that crazy, hard to read, scrawly script was this, um, like, just horrific and yet exciting thing to find in that we found out her mother's name just from that record mm-hmm. and um and that was that was I mean that's the heritage of black America yeah is not knowing where you come from and that that's something that we can't that can't be made right and I think that we struggle as a country and as a church to say that to say that there are things that cannot be made right um and but a lot of times people who are hurting don't need us to fix it they just need us to say that's not fair or that's not right and that acknowledgement can be enough a lot of times Um, sorry, I'm looking back at my notes to make sure I'm not going too far off track. (laughs) I tend to wander. Um, so one of the things that, um, that I've, I've learned in my experience as a Black American and as a Black member of the church is that um, this that this process is 
an ongoing process. It's not something, like I said, people want it to be a quick fix or something that is already fixed, like racism is over. It's been resolved. Um, one of my heroes is Brian Stevenson. Have you heard of Brian Stevenson I have before? Not. I have not. He is the lawyer in the movie Just Mercy. Yeah. Um, and he wrote a book called Just Mercy. And this man is just, he's amazing. You should definitely read the book. <laughs> Life-changing. I read it. I try to read it like once a year pretty regularly um, because he just has this, this whole viewpoint that will, that just shifts your whole paradigm of, of humanity. Um, and, but he talks a lot about how if it's earned, then it's not mercy. So the more you can realize how broken you are, the more mercy you can receive. But we are unwilling to accept our brokenness and therefore we're unable to receive the mercy that Christ is trying to offer us because we're trying so hard to be good and deserving. But that is what blocks us from receiving it. Um, but he talks a lot about racism in America and he contends that there is like that a reckoning needs to happen, that there's a narrative that we need to challenge and change and that it's going to be uncomfortable, but there's, there's something better on the other side, that the future um, in which we have acknowledged and have a shared understanding of history is going to be so much greater than we can even imagine. Love that. And I think that that's also, that's, he's talking about America, obviously, but I think that's true within the church as well. There's a lot of things in our history that we are unable to move past and people are unable to process appropriately because we cannot bring it out and talk about it in uncomfortable ways and then, and acknowledge things that may have been wrong. I believe that because of the internet and the access that our kids are going to have, that they're going to be confronted with a lot of the things that we were not confronted with in church history or in um, quotes or things like that, that we just were able to never have to deal with. And I think that one of the unfortunate things, and I think this, like I said, is not just a church thing. I think it's in American history as well. Um, they're going to have, like, they're not going to be able to stay. Like, they're not going to be able to handle the fact that we, the adults in the situation, the adults in the room can't handle it. We can't have hard conversations. We can't let them have feelings about things. Um, we have to try and make them feel like it was okay when it wasn't. And for... Uh, for most people, I think one of the things that Black America has had to deal with is the mixed bag of history. I can say that the founding fathers were amazing and that they were also racist and that the founding of this country was done in a way that it shouldn't have been done using slave labor and things like that. And I can still say I am American and I'm not leaving. I'm going to stay and make it better. Um, and that is something that a lot of white Americans 
can't do. They instead they have to try and bend history and say, oh, it wasn't really that way or it wasn't that bad, or they were or why are you being so negative about it? Or he was just a product of his time. And I can just say he was racist or he was sexist. And that's like <laughs> he was. And I think that it's gonna be harder and harder. Like we are going to look ridiculous trying to say that someone wasn't racist or sexist to our kids in this information age um, when they have a clear quote in front of them <laughs> that is racist or a clear example or story of something that that person actually did or said um, that is sexist or that is just wrong. And so I think there's a lot of power in being able to say that was wrong. <laughs> Agreed. Um, I think, sorry, it's getting darker. Um, I think that in my upbringing, I was raised, um, my parents were very forward thinking. They worked really hard to make sure that we are very aware of history and of, I mean, I was traumatized through being forced to watch Roots and (laughs) I watched all the, my mom is a teacher, like I said, and she got these videos from the library that showed like the civil rights protests and people getting beaten with batons and sprayed with water hoses and attacked by dogs and lynchings and things like that. Like I was given a very um, broad education on the realities of history, on slavery and things like that. At the same time, my parents knew how the world worked. And so I was raised also to code switch. Um, and to, um, and I don't think it's, but I I do think it exists, but I don't think for them that it was self-loathing or self-hatred. It was teaching their kids how to work in the world. But for some people that does turn into self-loathing and self-hatred and thinking that anything that, and I, I am bilingual. I served a Spanish speaking mission. I've seen this in multiple cultures. Um, a great book called Barakun. It's by Zora Neale Hurston. It's amazing, <laughs> but it's the story of the last slave ship. And it's true. She's she was an anthropologist, so she went and did interviews with a man that was I can't remember how old he was at the time she was doing the interviews, but he came over on one of the last slave ships when slavery had been made illegal. There were still the slave trade, the Atlantic trade had been made illegal, so they couldn't bring more over, but they could still trade within the states. But anyway, she when interviewed this man who came over and he talks about the betrayal of the African tribe that betrayed his tribe and helped them get sold into slavery. And then his experience crossing the ocean and coming here and some of the most racist people or the most difficult or cruel people that he met were um, next generation slaves. They were people who had been who had not actually been through what he had been through, whose parents or grandparents had been through what he had been through. And, and I see this with, um, with Hispanic immigrants too. Um, they are trying so hard to distance themselves from what is hated that they learn to hate it too. Um, you'll see it with homosexuals and LGBT people of every ilk too. Um, and my husband's talked, I think, talked about it a little bit in his podcast where he distanced himself from people who were outwardly gay 
because, um, and he disliked everything that they might like. Um, and so I think that's a natural human reaction, but it's something that we have to challenge and we have to give people places of safety so that they can grow out of that. But I think it's definitely a stage I experienced some level. I mean, I didn't have any self-loathing, but I did. I was raised to believe that the wider you sounded, the more educated and professional you were. Mm. Um, Straight hair was more professional than curly hair. Mm. Um, Dressing in certain ways. And the reality is that if you look back at pictures during those eras of the civil rights movement, it worked. Martin Luther King had civil rights activists dress in suits and Sunday clothes because that made them look respectable and it worked. I mean, it, it, it was a survival thing. So I don't blame my parents for it because it was, it is, it, it was a survival thing. It still is a survival thing, but I think education can help with that too. Um, they dressed in that way, but then the next generation, like the hip hop generation rebelled against that and dressed in, in very unprofessional ways to rebel against that overdressing to try and compensate for your color type of thing. Um, and so we have to look at the bigger picture, the whole arc of history. And I, I mean, that's what a story is. It's more than just a snapshot, right? Um, so, but I saw a quote recently that said, I learned how to be safe. Now I'm learning how to be free. And I really related to that a lot. And I feel like probably a lot of people would relate to it. I think my husband probably could um, in the ways that he passed as a white straight male um, because he was learning how to be safe. And that's an important lesson to learn. I code switch. I can talk. I sound like a white person. Um, and that got me to where I am <laughs> now. I mean, to talking to you, Richard, um, I don't know how many Black people you have interviewed who speak Ebonics. Most of the people that you've had on here are code switchers like me. I know Colvay. I've talked to James Jones before. Like, you know, like there's, we have learned and it pays. And that's unfortunate. And I want to, and that's why I want to say that I am here because of a privilege that I didn't earn. I didn't choose to have parents that speak the way that they do and knew how to have the success that they have had. Not that they're rich and wealthy, but like <laughs> they're educated and functional. And and even for people who are not ethnically um, disadvantaged, for people who are disadvantaged because of uh, dysfunctional family or other things like that, um, you can't fake it. Like it's just like, and I got lucky. I don't even want to call it a blessing because that means that God likes me better than somebody who <laughs> did not get as good of a family. Um, but because of that privilege, it is imperative that I recognize my privilege, state it. I have a privilege that you do not have. And for that reason, I am going, I will not be silent ever because you deserve to be heard and you deserve to be valued. Um, and your story is sacred and nobody's hearing it just because of where you were born and who you were born to and the life experiences that you had. 
um, I tell my kids, life is not fair. It never is like there's zero chance it's going to be fair. And so it's our job to make sure that it's unfair in good ways for as many people as we can. Because it's just not going to be fair. Um, it's unfair in bad ways and it's unfair in good ways. Um, we got to go to Make-A-Wish, go to Disney World with my son, Ben. And so I'll say, was it fair that we got to go to Disney World and other people didn't get to go? And they're like, no. And I'm like, yeah, that's the good kind of unfair. Was it fair that Ben got cancer? No, that's the bad kind of unfair. And that's just how life is. But we can, um, we raised money and helped another family be able to go on a trip to Disney World. And (laughs) in those ways, we can try to swing the pendulum towards good unfairness. And um, that's why I wanted to, one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast is because um, I do have privilege uh, and I can't take it off and set it down. And I can, but I can move in ways that disrespect it and disrespect the people that don't have it. And I don't want to move in those ways if I can help it. Um, And real fast, I'm going to move on to my next section, but real fast, I did want to say one of the reasons I wanted to do this also is for spouses of people who are gay. This is a hard, hard thing and it hurts and it's heavy and um, it's hard not to be bitter about it. And I wanted you to be you as a spouse to be heard and to be seen um, because this isn't your spouse's story. This is your story. And I feel like um, even in church settings, sacrament meeting, state conference, things like that, their story is more welcome than ours a lot of times. Um, because their story starts, especially for people who are active and living in ways that are accepted by the church. Um, they are, their story starts with a confused little boy or girl who is alone and struggling. And, and, that is a story that people can hear easier than someone like me whose story starts um, with sexual rejection, with intimacy issues. Our stories as the spouses start with sex and that's not even a word we can say. So how can we talk about our story? Um, It starts with a lot of um, very personal and intimate things sexual things that we aren't like that we can't even come to the table and talk about um so for that reason i want to um just open the door to that for spouses um i realize that in so many settings including in conferences and um things that are especially for spouses that you're not heard, that you're not understood, that you're not allowed. But um, it's important to me that all that both sides of that story be told. I don't think 
that spouse, that the gay spouse is intentional. Like, I don't think they're like trying to get the glory or centering themselves or um, anything like that or leaving out a part. It just is that their story starts, especially if they've lived a righteous life or the gone the path that they're supposed to go. Then there's, then it's, it's just a very different start and middle and end. And um, for the rest of us, <laughs> it is difficult the whole way through, but it's in ways that um, society, especially church society, has decided we shouldn't talk about. So, wow, um, that was very insightful. And no, I mean, you're sharing. Um, lots of things no one shared before, and it's really helpful, Jesse. But the story of the straight spouse, but the story of the gay spouses, I've never thought of it that way. And um, that's very helpful. And I'm sure straight spouses listening in a mixed um, orientation marriage appreciate you talking about that. I think that um, People are interest, more interested in the gay spouse story just because it differs from their story. And a lot of the straight spouses I've talked to, no one ever even asked them or talks to them, like their husband will come out to somebody in the ward or a, a family member or something like that. Nobody ever says I, nobody ever says anything to me um, when my husband has come out to them. Um, and I, I realize it's a very uncomfortable topic for people to bring up, um, I was talking to a spouse, one that you've met before, <laughs> who um, said that somebody asked her how she was doing and she just burst into tears. And it's been decades for her. And um, people, I think, like I said, just assume that we're the normal spouse. So they don't, like they already know our story kind of like they like because they're straight. The people that we're talking to generally are straight and we're the straight spouse. So. um, But so they're more curious about our gay spouse's story because they are different than them. Mm. Um, So I understand. I don't think it's malicious is what I'm trying to say. I don't think it's that intentional slight. I think it combines <laughs> with it being like a something that they just assume, plus it being an uncomfortable area to talk about, but they just don't. Um, so, um, but I think, sorry, I think I'm going to skip to that instead of doing what I had planned. <laughs> I think I'm just going to move into that section of what I wanted to talk about. So, um, I really struggled at BYU. As a Black student, I was wildly unprepared for life at BYU. Um, the city that I was raised in, Little Rock, is in the South. It has still existing segregation and racism issues, but it is, I haven't looked recently, but something like 51, 49, something like that, percentage wise of Black to white. So there is a very large black population and um, I can't remember which one's 49 and which one's 51, but it's, it's a big. Um, And I remember when I went to BYU, I remember calling my mom 
and I, I can't remember if it was the first day or the first week or whatever, and saying to her, and this sounds terrible, but I'm going to, in the interest of all vulnerability and honesty, <laughs> I called her and said, I didn't know if you got all the white people together in the world in one place that there would be this many of them. <laughs> I was like the culture shock, but like I can't even describe the level of culture shock that I went through. And um, like I said, I experienced racism all growing up, but it was, I was used to it. Um, and it was different than the racism I experienced in Utah. All the white people I knew <laughs> had seen black people before and, <laughs> and we're very used to them. Um, Interesting. And one of the things I was just joking with one of my sisters the other day, we were kind of joking, like the white people in the South know how to act like they don't like, they're not like trying to talk to like a thing that white people in Utah often do is assume that you are conservative and like them, even though no matter what race or gender, or whatever you are, whereas here in the South, people assume, I mean, some places of Arkansas are different, but like in the city in Little Rock, people assume or don't assume that you naturally agree with them. So we're going to talk about it. Me and my sister were joking. We're going to talk about the Razorbacks, which is a football team. The weather, you know, like ooh, this humidity. If it doesn't stop, we're going to, you know, whatever. Like that's how we talk. Like nobody's coming up to me talking about like Trump or like any sort of like, because they just don't assume that that's what I want to talk about. Um, and or that I agree with them. Whereas in Utah, that was pretty constant. People assumed that because you were there you were a good black person mm. that was black but voted the way that they did and mm. thought the way that they did and you know and um they also when I started dating my husband he was in complete shock we went to the temple and somebody approached me which was very very common when I lived in Utah and was like where are you from I'm like Arkansas they're like no, where are you really from? And I'm like, no, really. <laughs> and they're like, oh, my son served a mission in Cape Town, you know, or wherever. <laughs> and um, I I mean, like I often got where are your people from? Like mm. Arkansas, like um, people would actually get frustrated sometimes in Utah um, with me being so difficult and not like volunteering my heritage. I'm like, there's this little thing called slavery. You might have heard of it. I don't actually know what country I'm from. <laughs> um, but that was, um, I also often got approached. This was weird. People would come up to me and say, did you know you're going to be white in heaven? Um. And so I learned to respond in comedic ways to deal with it. That's how a lot of us, we would get together and joke about it at BYU. Um, but it was hurtful. And I mean, like I would, I learned to respond, oh no, Jesus is black, like, or things like just to, like to really confuse them. But, um, it was hard and, and I moved away and don't want to move back. <laughs> um, I do have friends, Tamu, Colve, like I, and they are such good examples to me. I love seeing them. Um, the Bonner family is amazing. Um, 
but I th- I just carry too much already. So I'm, I can't carry more. <laughs> um, and, um, but when I lived in Utah for BYU, my husband and I met at BYU and, um, I had dated a lot before I met him and based on, <laughs> based on my research, of basically dating a lot, guys were interested in sex. And so I did not have any questions as to whether or not Brayden was, I just felt like he was very mature and, um, kind of, um, you know, controlled himself was, and was, he talked to me a lot about my ideas and things like that. And so, and that was different than a lot of the guys that I had dated. And so, and sorry, I'm explaining things because I know my cousins are going to listen or other people who are not members of the church and my friends. And so in the LDS culture, we believe in abstinence before marriage. That's kind of one of the tenets of, of the ways that we do sexuality. Not that we do sexuality well, but I'm just going <laughs> to, we don't do sexuality, but, <laughs> and there's a lot of shame and issues around sexuality within abstinence only churches. But, um, so it was not, I'm just saying that to say to my cousins and other people who may be listening who are not members, it was not like, why doesn't he want to have, like, it wasn't like a shocker, like he should want to, and he's not. It was more like a, cause, just because that was, I mean, there was, I think um, in, in um, just because of the way the LDS culture is, that's just like a, you don't expect someone to want to do, to have sex with you before marriage, especially not at somebody who is a, who goes to church, who's an active member or things like that very frequently. And so, so I, what I'm trying to say is it wasn't like a telltale sign. It wasn't like, a, oh, obviously you should have known he was gay because he didn't have sex with you. It was just normal. Um, and I somehow was raised, and this is a fluke. I have no idea how this happened because my parents, I don't think they were intentional about this, but so, <laughs> so I was raised with very little shame um, about sex. And so I was looking forward to it, was not ashamed or didn't feel like I shouldn't enjoy or want to have sex. I did plan on not having it till we were married, but I, it wasn't like a taboo or something that even then was going to be um, shameful. Um, and which, like I said, I have no idea how that happened because I actually asked my parents before this podcast, <laughs> how did you learn about sex? Like who told you, because I knew that both of their upbringings had been somewhat untraditional. My mom, this is great, said that she was about 10 and on the playground and some kids had some questions about sex. So she, I can't remember if she like stole a pass or how she got a pass to the library and went and got a book about sexual reproduction <laughs> and learned all about it or no got the encyclopedia i think and learned all about it and then the next recess taught all the kids <laughs> what she had learned so <laughs> so that was her um birds and the bees talk she actually gave it at age 10 to children on the playground um <laughs> and um and then my dad who still is like horrified if you say 
anything about like kissing or handle like he's yeah he's a prude but (laughs) um so I was like how did you learn about sex like who taught you and um he said he saw a bad word written on the wall in the bathroom when he was in fourth grade and asked his mom about it and she explained about it and um so I think he had that conversation and then she I think when he was a teenager, she made, I think she gave him an encyclopedia or something to learn about sexual reproduction. So that was it. So I, like I said, I have no idea why I was sexually confident and okay about it as a young adult at BYU. Weird. Um, Possibly because my parents were affectionate and okay with being affectionate in front of us. I have no idea. Um, And they did try. They did. My mom did have a sex talk with each of us and all these things. She was trying to provide what was not provided for her, but she didn't have an example or anything. And so she just did the best that she could. Um, but I never like would have asked her about things or things, you know, of that nature. Um, I'm hoping that my, that I'm trying to create a different culture in our family with our kids and talking about puberty and sex, but it's, it's a it's an uphill one because it's a culture. It's not just LDS culture and Western culture that is very much taboo. Um, but um, so sorry, I was talking about. Oh yeah, so getting married. Um, I was after we got married. I was definitely confused about my husband's lack of um, interest in sex. We did have sex, but it just, he just, like, he wasn't, like, he would do it, but it wasn't like uh, he wanted, or like he was thinking about it ever. And um, it became very cyclical in nature. We would have time where I was frustrated and like, what's going on? Why are you not? attracted to me whatever whatever and then he would try really hard to be interested and attracted and so that would result in um intense periods of sexual intimacy and then but it would peter out like he would he couldn't sustain it and so then it would go back to a long period of no intimacy and I'm saying intimacy, but I mean sex, but I'm trying not to say sex too many times because this is an LDS thing and people are probably cringing right now. But um, I would go back to a period of that and then I would get frustrated. And then it was so it was very cyclical. And for years, for 13 years of our marriage um, and. Um, and I've since since he came out into the April 13th, 2020, uh, a lot of couples call it D-Day for like disclosure. Mm. But I, I listened to a podcast once where she called it D-O Day, which is she was saying it's dragged it out of him day because that's he did not come to her and say, hey, I'm gay. It was like a, she forced him to. And ours is more of a D-O Day. I dragged it out of him. Um, but um, I did not suspect like because I knew gay people and they didn't marry straight people. Like they married somebody that they were oriented to. So I 
the fact that he was married meant that he wasn't gay to me. And, um, but I, I, this is, (laughs) this is a tricky topic because within the LDS community, there are mixed orientation couples and there are, for lack of a better word, hierarchies of like where you're at. And if you're married and righteous, then you may be, will be judged in a different way than if you're divorced or if you're, you know, there's a lot of judgment even within these circles, which is unfortunate because we should be supporting each other instead of labeling each other. But um, so, so I'm saying that because... <laughs> Because I'm quoting from somebody who is kind of somewhat shined in the LDS mixed orientation community, but she was one of the first people, and I'm not going to say what it is, but she was one of the first people that I listened to. I think I actually read something that she wrote that I was like, oh, this person has had the same experience as me. But she knew before she got married that her husband was gay and I did not. But she went through similar stages of, um, Try like, and I, I I carry a lot of shame and embarrassment. This is probably one of the few things that I feel a lot of shame and embarrassment about. But like, of I went through stages of like trying so hard, just like, um, 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 physically and um you know, like dressing up and trying all these things to get him to be attracted to me. And then I went through a phase of letting go, but not in a good way of kind of like giving up and of letting myself, um, of not carrying myself in ways that would have been respectful to myself. Um, and of just not being there for me because he didn't care and allowing that to impact how much I cared about myself and how I took care of myself. And this particular sister shared this experience and I was like, whoa, that's my experience. Um, and, um, and I think that probably a lot of spouses can probably relate to that. And, um, Um, when I talked to my priesthood leaders after Brayden came out, I talked to my bishop, who I love and who was um, my, he was my, I was the early study president at the time. And um, we had been working together for two years at that point for a while. And so we had a good relationship and, um, but I want I do want to say, um, we had a good relationship because he chose to hear me and he chose to keep the conversation going. Cool. Um, there were things that he said that were not helpful, <laughs> but I was able to talk to him later about it and be like, Hey, that wasn't helpful. Please don't say that to anybody else. Um, <laughs> Um, and, and I did tell him, I said, and I think this is true in all relationships, not just with leaders, but even as parents, the conversation has to be ongoing. 
or we cannot connect in the ways that we need to to minister. It cannot be a one and done conversation. It has to be um, because I'm learning and growing and changing. If you talked to me 20 years about, ago about racism, what I said would have been very different than what I'd say 10 years ago, which would be very different from what I would have said a year ago. Um, and it's because I'm gaining perspective and changing. Um, and and I'm, I'm even gaining perspective of past experiences. So even my view of those past experiences and my feelings and opinions about it would be different than they might have been then. And so that's why the conversation has to be ongoing. If you talk to your gay friend or your <laughs> lesbian daughter or whatever once 10 years ago about their feelings on the church and you haven't talked to them about it since, then this is your wake up call to go back and talk to them again because things have changed. They've had different experiences and life has dealt with them in ways that have impacted that. And it's important if you want to minister to them and you want to love them. Um, and Christ wants us to be wholly loved in the ways that we truly are. And if you want to be able to do that for that person, then you have to keep showing up. And that's what my bishop did for me. He kept the conversation going. And so when he made mistakes or I made mistakes in our conversation, it was okay because we were going to talk again. And in other relationships, my husband has some had some familial, like there's just relationships where this is a one and done conversation. You got to get it all in because we're never talking about it again. And I think that um, that's comfortable, especially for people who were challenged by the conversation. They can feel like they were supportive and they did whatever. But uh, your loved one is is going to be in a different place than what, I mean, you're still telling their story from 10 years back where everything, where they felt this way and now they feel a different way. And so, and also our state president at the time listened and did like he was, he was very um, supportive and he talked a lot about, and this I think was probably, is probably unusual, but he talked about the healing that I would need. He he was very present for me. It wasn't just Braden's story to him. And um, but that that's just the way he was. Um, he actually, after President Nelson, the prophet of the church, gave an address in general conference, which is a conference we have every six months. Um, where the leaders of the church speak to the worldwide church, right? And so he gave a talk, president of the church, um, after George Floyd was killed, where he talked about racism and invited members of the church or told members of the church that they needed to lead out in efforts to eradicate racism. And my state president, President Chandler, asked me to speak in state conference on that topic. Um, after that talk was given. And you got to understand, I'm in a stake of, I don't know how many thousand people, but it's a lot of people. I'm the only Black female that I know of at the time in the stake. Um, I'm the Relief Society president at the time. And and we're in Arkansas. There, I knew racists within my own board and within the stake. And um, this was a very, very hard thing to do. 
And but he talked about how listening is how we keep the second great commandment. He said that God listening to us is one of the ways that he shows that he loves us and us listening to each other is the way that we show we love each other. And so he really wanted to challenge to to create that opportunity and that challenge for others. Um, he also said that um, we um, gain this false familiarity that keeps us from getting close and loving each other. He, he actually was talking about within the family with our own children. It's like you assume that you know, and so you don't ask and you don't listen. And that keeps you from listening in the ways that really show the love of Christ. Um, so he was just a great minister to us as we struggled just because he was, he listened. He was really good at asking hard questions. Um, and, but he talked a lot about mine. He said, you need to be healed to me. And he said, I don't know how, I don't know where or when, but that's, you need healing. And um, he talked about the hurt that I was experiencing. And he said um, that, um, and like I said, this is probably very unconventional, but he said that we can't run away from hurt because there's so much to be learned from it, but we can't also shouldn't stay a second longer than we need to. And so, and that hurt. And so if I needed to do something different with my life and my marriage, that was okay. Because like, like we needed to try, but it wasn't like a off the table, like divorce was not an off the table thing. Um, and for me, the ways that I process things, I'm neurodiverse, like, like a lot of people, and especially like a lot of people in my family line, um, the way that I process things, it all has to be on the table. Like it really has to be an option. And that's been one of the struggles for me at Braden because that's not how he processes things. He doesn't even want to consider options that he doesn't want to have happen. And I need all the options to be on the table and them all to be real possibilities so that I can pick up what I really want. I have to have all the choices available to me. So, so that's been something that's been hard for us. Um, sorry, I am going on not. Did you have anything, any questions or anything for me, Richard? I did have one other thing, but. This is a great podcast. I've written down some really insightful things you've said but keep sharing jesse um just two other things that i wanted to share real fast um have you heard of fatima sella reverend yeah. dr Fatima fatima sella yeah i'm a huge fan of hers okay. and the work she does yes. and who she is okay so between her and brian stevenson i like i'm not somebody that would ever fangirl but yeah I love both of them, their writings. And so, and I found like in the black experience, there's a lot of necessity, like I said, for holding both and for holding space for bad and good together. Um, Amanda Gorman, who was the, who was the um, poet laureate for the, for the inauguration and read 
Yes, I know a who that is. Yeah. poem that she wrote. Um, yeah, and she she just has this incredible, and Fatima has the same thing. Fred Stevenson has the same thing. Martin Luther King has the same thing, where they acknowledge the darkness and still have space for hope. Um, I actually have a quote by Brian Stevenson where he says, um, I was in a lecture that he did and they ask, how do you avoid bitterness? Because he's represent, he's seeing injustices of our justice system daily, right? And they said, how do you avoid bitterness? And he said, hopelessness is the enemy of justice. And as Christians, we think of hope as like this positive pie in the sky optimism thing. But he said, it's not a preference for optimism over pessimism. It's an orientation of the spirit. It's a willingness to position yourself in hopeless places and to be a witness. So he's going into the dark and being a witness and saying, it's dark. It is hard. It is unjust. It's unfair. And this hurts. And that is hope for him. Whereas, and so, and that's something that I really connect with. Like Fatima will go into the Book of Mormon and find places where it just doesn't work. And she, she says it, she gives it a name. And she says, this is racism. This is sexism. This is not right. And yet I'm still here. I'm still standing as a witness, like Brian Stevenson is saying in this. And, um, Amanda Gorman does the same thing. There's always light if you're brave enough to see it. There's always light if you're brave enough to be it. Like we have to understand the darkness in order to be any, like we can't say there's not darkness and then try to be light. Like why do we even need light if we're saying there's no darkness? Um, But Brian Stevenson says that being a witness in dark places, um, hope changes our capacity to endure. It causes us, it forces us to look for things that we can't see. Um, And we develop it by being proximate or getting close to those who are experiencing inequality and injustice. Um, And I think that, like I said, for a lot of Black Americans and Black members of the church, especially, we have to, we have to live in that space where a lot of other people don't have to live. They can reject or, uh, I don't want to say pretend, but create a reality and a space where those bad things don't exist. And we can't do that. And so where do, what do we do? Just dwell in this (laughs) darkness. Um, we have, but, uh, and I think, I do want to say it is hard. I have, um, I, I challenge the idea that we can, through our own faith and works and righteousness, um, get to a place where that darkness doesn't exist because we're in a fallen world and and if we're at a place where that darkness doesn't exist, we're not proximate enough to people who are struggling. We're not listening. Um, our heart isn't there or we are listening, but still trying to keep our distance. And so and so that says that there's something that we need to change. Um, 
I work at a, I substitute teach at a daycare. Um, I've been in early childhood my whole life, since 14. And a lot has changed in the ways that I deal with kids since I started at 14 to now having teenagers. And But one of the things that I've found is that I'll have a kid who's crying when their mom drops them off. And the natural reaction is to like get a toy or be like, don't cry. It's okay. Mom's coming back. Here's the snack. Here's the, you know, whatever to try and get them to stop crying. Um, but I've learned that if I kneel down or sit down next to them or crouch down and say, it is hard when mom leaves, isn't it? It makes you sad. You don't know what the people who are going to take care of you are going to do like, you know, what your mom's going to do when she's taking care of you, huh? It's, it's sad. It's hard. You can be sad as long as you need to be sad. You can cry as long as you need to cry. And then I just hang out. I just chill next to them. And um, some kids have intense separation anxiety that's ongoing. Um, I also invite parents to come in and hang out with us often. But what I found is that by allowing that sadness, um, they usually will, after a few minutes, come over to me, sit with me, cry, cuddle for a minute. And then I'm, as they start to calm down, I say, what do you want to do while we wait for it to come back? And they will usually be able to go pick something, a toy or something. And I think that wow. we as adults have been getting that message and trying to to keep ourselves from feeling for so long since childhood that we've gotten really bad at hearing ourselves and at allowing ourselves to be sad and are allowing ourselves to have what we label as negative emotions. But our negative emotions are really trying to tell us something. And we can listen to them. And I, I say, I have said before, um, not allowing anxiety increases anxiety, but allowing anxiety actually allows it to dissipate because it's like, I feel it, it's here and you move on. <laughs> and so I think, and I, I think like Brian Stevenson, like I said at the beginning, if we can allow ourselves to experience that, what we consider negativity <laughs> about church history, about our own history, then we can move through it. And there's something better on the other side, including empathy and compassion for people who are not like us and that have had different experiences than us. Um, I think I've, I think I've been challenged and, and I don't know why, I don't know what I did, <laughs> but somehow I have been challenged in every prejudice I've ever had. Um, having grown up in childcare, I had lots of judgments about other parents and about ways that they should be doing things. That's all out the window because my kids are just, yeah. And I have, I've judged people who have lost kids. I remember specifically having somebody, I was with somebody who, somebody asked, how many kids do you have? And she said five or however, I don't remember who, how many she had, but it included her child that had passed away. And I was like, why is she doing that? That is just like she doesn't like she brings up all the time well now I have lost a child and I know people judge me in that same way like I now I have marital problems like I just have become everything that I've ever judged and um and I think Heavenly Father could have left me alone on the first one right mm -hmm. and I'm like Heavenly Father you could have just challenged me one time but like 
um, it is encouragement to drop all of those presumptions as fast as I can so he doesn't feel like he needs to challenge me. <laughs> I'm like, what else do I have a problem with? Because he's probably going to throw something at me in that way. But um, yeah, I think that, but I'm sorry, I'm just going to say for your listeners, Dr. Dr. Reverend Fatima Sella has a book called The Book of Worm for the Least of These. She has two, um, volume one and volume two, and it's a the Book of Mormon from a social justice justice narrative, and it's amazing, and and it's challenging. It's hard. I heard her get interviewed on Beyond the Block, and Derek Knox, who's awesome, <laughs> said, um, and he's he's a recent he was a recent convert, Jewish biblical scholar, and um, LGBT and joined as an adult, as an out LGBT person. I'm like, what the heck, Derek? What my, but how did this like add together for you? But I remember him saying, I don't need other people to think that I belong because God told me I do. And that was very cool for me. But he was talking about Fatima's book. And he said, as members, we have stopped, like the Book of Mormon is no longer transformative for us. It's like a proof that Joseph Smith was a prophet or proof that we're doing the right thing. Like it shows that our version of prayer is right or whatever, like, but it's not challenging or transformative or hard. And that's bad. Scripture should challenge us to change. It should be difficult. It should be like, make you uncomfortable in your seat. And um, that really resonated with me. The Book of Mormon is a warning. And it's not a warning about not being white enough. It's not a warning about, uh, they had a meme or a thing once that they posted that was like, I don't know who, who needs to hear this, but nobody in the Book of Mormon was white. I was like, yes, you're right. But, <laughs> but um, she kind of challenges the, Fatima kind of challenges the narrative that the Nephites are the good guys that we should be like, and the Lamanites are the bad guys that we shouldn't be like, and instead forces us to see the the scriptures is more complex than that. And it's something that challenges us to get up and do something. I think that is something that we are going to have to fight for as a church to really keep the Book of Mormon centered as a transformative um, piece of scripture and not just as a passive something that pats us on the back. Um, I know I'm out of time. I wanted to finish <laughs> with, uh, I write poetry occasionally. And I have a very personal piece that I wanted to share. Um, that um, I don't know if you've heard the Andrea Day song, Rise Up. It's a fabulous song. But she talks about, um, she says, I'll rise up. Rise like the day, I'll rise up in spite of the ache. I'll rise up and I'll do it time and time again. And um, this is, I I love that song, so I'm not dissing it at all. (laughs) But I heard that song and I was in this place of my spouse just coming out and struggling and feeling like we as women, like that is our calling to rise up and do it time and time again and rise up in spite of the ache. And so this, I wrote in response to that 
and it is for a straight spouse. And I'm going to tell you, it's going to be scary for some people. (laughs) But um, for me, it's one of those ways that things have to be on the table. And so I put it on the table for me that this is, and this is, yeah, anyway. So it's called, It's Not Your Job to Hurt. Hey, baby, it's not your job to hurt. It shouldn't always be your turn to cry. I see you breaking every single day. But I got to tell you, honey, somebody lied. Somebody, he went and put the world on your shoulders. Somebody, oh, somebody who didn't have the world to give. Rain isn't always your color. Gray and broken, that's no way to live. So I'm telling you, it's okay to let go, even though things may break. And you may never know what could have been if you could have lasted another day, another hour, another minute. He didn't have it to give. Hey, baby, it's not your job to hurt. It shouldn't always be your turn to carry on. There's much of this life we can't fake. So why are you smiling? Why? Why are you smiling when you are dust inside, when you are lonely in every crown? Rain, it's not always your color. No, no, no. Gray and broken, but don't stop living. You weren't perfect, but you were complete. I'm telling you, you gave all you had to give. Baby, it's not your job to hurt so that they don't have to. No, no, baby, let them cry. It's not your job to fix their world. You're always arranging and changing, exhausted, behind the scenes and under their noses too. But baby, they'll never choose to see you, never choose to free you, never break your chains, never let you fly. Sometimes letting go is the best way to fight. But you don't need any more darkness. Sunrise is your new job. Put down that world and watch the light change your sky. Today, it's not your turn to cry. Um, And that was for the spouses. I see you. I see the way that you're carrying um, the world. And um, we have a myth within the church that all things that are necessary for salvation have been provided to us. And it's not true. That was said before 1978. Before Blacks were able to hold the priesthood or have temple blessings. That was said. So all things necessary to the salvation of all of us are not available. That does not mean the church isn't true. But it does mean that it is lacking in some areas. And so we have been presented with this impossible situation and the doctrine is not there that answers our questions. If kids are still dying by suicide that are LGBT within the LDS church, something is that is necessary for their salvation is not available to them. There's not an answer to their hard questions just like there was not for Blacks before the Temple and Priesthood ban was lifted. Um, And so I see you. I see that you are in a situation that people want to pretend doesn't exist. 
they want for there to be an answer for everything. And there's just not. Um, and that rocks their world so much that they have to put you on a shelf or in a corner where they can't see you and see the pain. Um, but I appreciate Richard for providing a platform for this. And um, I appreciate everyone who is willing to go to uncomfortable places by listening. Jesse, I'm just so moved. Um, on behalf of so many listeners that have probably been brought to tears or written down things or have had new insights because of your voice and perspective. Thank you for being on the podcast. I hope listeners, you're not getting an echo. I'm getting a little echo. So I hope that's not coming through on the recording, but here's some things I wrote down from what Jesse shared. Um, just, I, these are just, I wanted to, you know, you were talking about your family in the beginning, I wanted a partner to compliment them versus complete them. <laughs> um, I like that. Um, I recognize um, I'm white listeners, and if I did my genealogy, I would never think that I would learn the ancestor's name through a will where one of my ancestors was property. I just, I just have never thought of that. And how that I is. have been through records with where there's pigs and goats and sheep and Negroes all listed together. Um, and often I've been, I've actually looked in records where I'm like, okay, because it says black male age three, like, so it doesn't even have a name. So I'm like, okay, he would have been close to three at this age and he would have had a sister that was close to seven. So this must be him type of thing. Um, so it is a very frustrating where it is very dehumanizing the whole time. I mean, you don't get to a point where it's like relieving because Just, of slavery. I mean, and no records. Um, that's really sobering. And I'm just sorry. And I, I learned, I mean, you learned your, somebody's name, a mom's name through property records that contain all the other things. And it is, just totally dehumanizing and and I'm glad you talk about that stuff. I like where we sometimes excuse racism and um oh it was just a product of their time or they didn't need that and um it's it's racist. Uh, there's no excuse for it and I I'm guilty of being a racist. I probably hold racist views now. I think of the things I might have said to you at BYU. <laughs> would have been very similar to some of the things like, where do your people come from? Um, and I recognize I have to listen to Black people listeners to recognize racism that's still within in, in me. I'm not at the finish line, and I need to learn to be uncomfortable because it helps me make the changes I need to make to eliminate racism, follow what you remind us to do. So I don't think it's good to excuse um, prior people for their racism. I think it's better to own own that and call it what it is accurately. And I think it helps us then do better in our own lives. You I was going to say, Go I, I mean, I, everybody has some racism in them. One of the problems is that um, we're, we're tuned to find threats. And so if you're walking down an alley mm -hmm. and you're going to be more scared of a 
a larger person than a small person. You know, like a child, if a child's coming towards you, you're going to be more scared of an adult than a child. You're going to be more scared of a man than a woman. The problem is at the end of that spectrum for everybody, if they're walking down a dark alley and somebody's coming towards them, is a black male. Yeah. And that is the problem that is like, if I'm going to be more scared of a adult than a child, I'm going to be more scared of a man than a woman. I'm going to be more scared of a black person than a white person. Then the furthest thing on that, that spectrum for most people is a black male. And most people have not been accosted, especially most members of the church, by a black male. So why is that something, why is that the scariest thing that you can encounter? And that is racism, that is fear, and um, and it's inherent. I mean, I that might be the scariest thing for me in that situation because I have internalized racism because, of, and most countries do because of colonization and things like that. There's a lot of internalized racism too. So it's not just a white problem. Interesting. You introduced a really good term that I wasn't familiar with, co-switch. And then you gave that a name and then gave some examples of that. You've given the best story of a straight spouse that's ever been on the podcast. We've had couples at times on the podcast together in mixed orientation marriages. And, and, but it's usually probably the, the non-straight person, the gay person taking the lead. Um, this was really helpful for um, the straight spouse in validating the complexity of their road. And I thought you did a great job. And um, for 13 years wondering what's, you know, is this me? And um, understanding this is just understand what's going on here. But there's pain there. And you did a really good job of, you know, your pain is related to sexual intimacy and wondering, you know, what's going on here. And that's an uncomfortable conversation to have. Um in our faith community, in our broader community, but it's, and it's an easier conversation, like you pointed out to her, a gay scared um, young man, young woman, where can handle that story as a youngster growing up, wondering how this works for them. Um, I learned a lot listening to that segment, and I think that segment's going to help a lot of people. Um, you said, a lot, you have all these one-liners, um, Jesse. Um, we should be supportive of each other versus labeling each other. Um, then I wrote down something you didn't say, but it's just my impression. I thought you are really brave to talk about real stuff in a really thoughtful way. I love your concept of you've got to have an ongoing conversation. And then you give examples, your bishop and your stake president, and just we're having an ongoing conversation. This isn't a one and done. Um, that is really helpful ministering principle. This is a great podcast just to help us minister better to people that we love. Um, then you said, and there's lots of people who avoid us. So <laughs> like it, it goes both ways, but they have been when it, I remember saying to our Bishop, like I was, he invited us. I can't remember if he invited us over for dinner or just in the talk again, he was very intentional and can't like, it wasn't like we had to go to him to strike up the conversation anymore. And I remember saying to him, the fact that you're doing this for me makes me feel because we were not out yet. But it was like, it makes me feel like maybe other people would be, would still love us. And I think that's the exact words I use, that maybe if other people knew the truth, they would still love us because he still interacted with us in ways that showed that he loved us. And the fear, of course, for everybody who's not out is that if anybody knew the truth, that they wouldn't love you. 
And so he proved that by his actions that that was not true. And I love that this relationship was so strong that you could point out to him things that weren't helpful. And I sense the foundation of the relationship allowed that. And he wanted to learn. It was probably new space for him. And and you, I just love the story of your bishop and your stick president. And they weren't perfect, but they were willing to have an ongoing conversation and initiate that and not just wait for you. One of my guests coined a term, vulnerability hangover, where he came out to his ward in elders quorum and then then he just was worried, oh, I got to go to Elders Quorum again. And just, you know, what are, is everybody going to think? And so it comes back to your point, the ongoing conversation where, you know, that people continue to have the conversation about these tougher topics and proactively invite you to dinner. And, and some of the fears that you have in your mind may be relieved because people that really love you keep the conversation going. And yeah, then, I, go ahead. I think... Oftentimes people, and I, this is probably more the case than it is not the case. It's like when I gave my talk on racism in state conference, people were like, I can't believe people don't like you. Like who would be, I love you. I love how straightforward and how much you tell the truth and how you just tell it like it is. I'm like, I code switch with you. Like if you only like black people who act white, then you don't, that, then you don't really like black people. You know what I'm saying? Like, because people feel like they like me. So they're not racist. And I'm like, I'm a black person who acts white. Like, what about black people that act your definition of black? If you don't have any black friends that speak about it, that live, you know, in these areas where it's predominant, where there's a culture that is strong African-American culture, then you can't really. And I feel the same way about LGBT. If you only like LGBT people who act straight, who are married, who act the way that you think that LGBT people should be able to act then you're not really supportive. And even those LGBT people and Black people that you know and are friends with feel that. I can feel that if I acted any Blacker, we would not be. <laughs> or sometimes I do act Blacker or say things and people are like, oh, can you just get back to being the comfortable Jesse that I like? <laughs> and I think that's true for LGBT members too. They probably get a lot of people that are like, I love you. Can you please stop talking about the issues so that I can keep loving you? <laughs> That's so thoughtful. And I, that reminds me of your BYU experience where people just thought, um, because you're at BYU, as a Black Latter-day Saint, you held the same political views as the majority of the people there. And and that's the way to be a good you know, Latter-day Saint. And I think our leaders are trying to help us understand that we can hold a variety of different political views. and. And you don't have to co-switch, if I'm using that term right, have conservative political views to fit into the mainstream. We love you with whatever your political views are and don't have a feeling about who, what you should or shouldn't believe. Well, and, and code-switching takes a lot of emotional energy that we have to acknowledge because code-switching is actually speaking in a way that is not your native. It's like speaking a different language. I use a different cadence. I use a different tone of voice. I speak like a white person when I am trying to be credible. And that is, that's just the weight that minorities carry. Women have to speak in a different way to be taken seriously by men. LGBT people, you know, but they, so there's a lot of different people that are code switching, um, but it's specifically speaking in a way that gets, that um, makes you sound like the, the power, the power that be, whether that be white or 
mean, I guess it is generally white male, but, <laughs> but it's, it's speaking in a way that, and, and if I don't speak this way often enough, then I lose my power. I lose my voice. White people stop hearing me and stop thinking that what I'm saying is valid. So, but it, it has a cost. It is emotionally exhausting. Um, yeah. I don't know that firsthand, but I believe you. And you said something, you have this way of taking the gospel, Jesse, and then making it like, this is how we do it. Um, listening is how we keep the second great commandment. That, that's just like, what's it called? Mic drop. That's a mic drop comment. That's just like <laughs> the bomb comment. Um, I totally agree with that. And that's, and that's just so powerful. I love, and this is kind of back where your stake presence said you need healing. And I thought that was really thoughtful um, that we're all, I love that. I don't, and he didn't sort of say, I know how that works. I think it's okay for leaders to say, I, I recognize you have a need. Um, I don't quite know how to connect the dots to make that active in your life. The atonement can certainly help you, but you may need therapy. You may need time. Um, and he didn't just dismiss the complexity of your pain with a platitude. I love that, the intuition of your stake present. I love Fatima. <laughs> and I know some of the people you referenced, but I heard a talk from hers maybe eight years ago as I was becoming an ally about where Jesus was with the marginalized. And I can hear her, still hear her voice in my ear the way she just made it so obvious. Um, in her style that's so powerful you know she's a spiritual mentor to me you are too after listening to you but um her ability to help take the doctrine of the gospel of jesus christ and jesus ability to take that to the marginalized and help us to see the marginalized lift the marginalized use the privilege we have to lift their burdens is powerful and really helped me as a a new ally then you said, yeah, I feel like the the Pharisees wanted to quantify and qualify righteousness so they could know how they should feel and how they should judge others and how they should feel about themselves. And um, that Jesus came and broke that. He was like, no, we're not going to say if you took 100 steps on Sunday, you took less than that, you can feel good about yourself. And if you took more than that, you can have shame. And they wanted to know who should feel ashamed and who shouldn't feel like they really want, like, and I mean, I don't blame them. That makes it a lot easier if yeah. I know if I should feel bad or not. But it, it also takes away that whole element of listening and that whole element of, of connecting with, with each other and with Christ. And Christ was like, we're not going to quantify or qualify righteousness. And unfortunately, we struggle with that. I feel like President Nelson pushes us in that direction away from quantifying and qualifying and list making the strength of you, you know, all yeah. of these things that you do exactly. And then, you know, you're righteous, um, but we have a hard time letting go of it because we want to know whether or not we're good enough. And the truth is we, we were born good enough because we God's got this, enough. like he, Christ came to make I mean, he is, the, there is no way and he is the way maker. Like there's like, and so what do we have to do with it? Nothing. Like it wasn't the Pharisees amount of steps or lack of amount of steps that saved them. 
And it's, it's the same with us. It's not drinking coffee or not drinking coffee. It's not how many Sundays we attend or don't attend because the way maker is Jesus Christ. And so it is by and through him that we're saying it's not anything that, like, and so that is nerve wracking because it doesn't give us enough to do, but love each other. And we can't quantify or qualify that. So we're like, but what about some rules or some lists or something? And, I mean, like ministering, changing from yeah. home teaching and visiting teaching. Like we're like, but I, my sister actually told a story once recently. She was ministering, visiting, teaching an 88 year old lady in the nursing home. And she and her companion had been to see her and they both had to work. And it was her birthday, the day of her birthday. And they'd taken her to lunch or something a couple of days before. And they contacted the ministering brothers and said, hey, can you go by and take a card or some flowers or something? Today is her birthday. And they said, we already saw her this month. Like, <laughs> like that's the, the, the classic way that we are determined to do it, despite the fact that that's not what Jesus is all about. Like, we're like, nope, we really need a list. Um, then you said something. I've got two stars on either line, either side of this. We have to understand the darkness. And that gets into a whole separate discussion we don't have time for that um, politically there's a movement to not talk about the darkness and the, and the past and we're uncomfortable with that. And um, that's, we, we don't have time for that discussion, but I love what you And I, I agree we need to understand the darkness and, and to do that we need to know our history and we need to know accurate representation of our history. And it's messy, it's complicated, it's painful. Um, just like you talked, and I think that's how we heal our, our, our nation. We heal, um, challenges in our churches. We have to understand the darkness and we can't be afraid of it. And it's just part of, and it's really important. Um, then you said something, you just keep having these truth bombs, mic drops, hope changes their capacity to endure. And that was a really powerful concept is. I love the word hope. It's probably my favorite word, Jesse. And um, I love tools to endure the woundedness of life. And I love hope. So sometimes, so I love that. Then you told this story of working in preschool with little kids and our natural reaction to give them a treat or um, solve the problem. But then your long view of this space and just your emotional maturity is let them sit with the, you know, let them grow in the moment and be there with them. And um, it's okay to be sad and it's okay to have emotions. And that's something we need to learn to be a part of us. They're, they're good things. And if we do things to quickly mute them um, in ourselves and others, it doesn't teach that. And I thought of you with those little kids, just that's what Jesus would do um, with little kids. So that was I've got to say, Richard, that is what Jesus did with me. There was nothing that you could bring me when my when I put my four year old in a little suit wow. and put him in a coffin and we went to church and sang and prayed and took him to a cemetery and left him there. Wow. There was nothing that anybody could bring me, not a meal, not a prayer, yeah. not a copy of a conference talk. The only thing that they could do was sit with me. And that's what Christ did. He didn't say, count your blessings. He didn't say, 
cheer up. He didn't say, read this scripture and you'll be all right. He didn't say, don't forget about the plan of salvation. It was like he was in the room with me in a chair, like somewhere over in the corner in the back. He wasn't like right in my face. He just stayed. He just chill. He stayed there with me. He didn't throw doctrine at me. He didn't, he didn't even try Like it was like, he didn't even try to talk to me. I prayed and I couldn't hear anything. I couldn't feel him, but he stayed. And um, I think that's where I learned that for those little kids is because there was nothing in that grief that could do anything for me. But I was blessed with some friends, Emily Sigler, some of my best friends, Terry Bailey, <laughs> that just stayed and sat with me through my grief. And they came and laughed and they came and cried. They, I mean, okay, you could bring me a seven layer chocolate cake from Costco. That is one thing you could bring me. But other than that, no, <laughs> but there really is nothing that we could do. And we had to just get through and sit with it. And it took years. It took a lot longer than people are comfortable with you having grief for, but it took years. And, and I testify that Christ just stays. I love that. And in this third book I released, we added a chapter that's called Supporting Members Dealing with Death. And this has been a blind spot for me is um, I recognize that I add to the culture that faithful Latter-day Saints grieve for a short period of time and then move on because of their understanding of the plan of salvation. And it wasn't until listening to stories like you just talked about, losing your son, Ben, and realizing these platitudes or even a culture that celebrates a missionary that stays home as faithful. That's how we sort of create expectations that people that haven't faced grief may should respond. But I love what you just said is, and what Jesus role modeled, um, in his own ministry. And so there's work to do in our culture. Um, but it sounds like you had people in your life. And and um, then you talked about the scriptures. Um, you talked, you mentioned James Jones and, and Derek Knox and Beyond the Block and um, their good work. But then you said, and maybe this is Derek's words and your words, the scripture should, should cause us to be uncomfortable. And how we can transformative is, I think, is one of the words. And I don't often read the scriptures like that. Um, and so I just love looking at the scriptures in the context that you invite us to do. Because I think that's where a lot of growth can happen. And I, and I hope our culture in our Sunday schools, really society elders quorums, mimics what you were invited us to do. And it may not in a lot of wards at this point. But I go back to what you remind us about President Nelson is to root out racism. And that probably causes us to be uncomfortable if we're really going to root that out. And and we have to understand the darkness in our history to honor President Nelson's invitation. And I think that invitation extends to um, homophobia, sexism, all sorts of types of the principal skills to other areas. So that was just great. And the Book of Mormon for the Least of These is a, is a wonderful way to read that. This is a poem you wrote, isn't it? It's, is this a poem yes. you wrote? Yes. Can we, uh, is it okay if we link to that in the show notes? And so people could, I can put it in a Dropbox. Okay. There's going to be yeah, some sure. people that would want to read that again. Okay. Yeah. 
And so listeners, we'll put that in the show notes. We sometimes just add a Dropbox link where you can click on it. And it would go to a Word document of Jesse's poem. We'll make sure Jesse's okay with that. But it was just such a terrific poem. I think some of our listeners would like to read that and reread that and maybe use it in their lessons or in their circle of influence. Um, I don't know if your parents are going to listen to this podcast, um, but you have raised and have, and you know this, an incredible daughter. And um, what you've done in your family to raise um, Jesse as well as your other kids is remarkable. And to hear her talk and her maturity and her insights and how she's been stretched is a credit to her, but it's also credit to both of you and what you've done and the trailblazing work that you've done to create a family and um, open doors for Jesse. Um, Braden, if you're listening, you talked about Jesse and this remarkable, incredible, um, brave, courageous woman, and you're right. <laughs> um, and so thank you for talking about Jesse. And I noticed when Braden posted his podcast on his Facebook page, there's more comments than usual on his post, and some of them were um, about you, Jesse. Oh, I should read it. I actually made the conscious decision, Richard, to not listen to his before that's, I did mine. Well, there you go. That's a good Because thing. I didn't want to be respond. Like I wanted. That's a smart We thing. are working a lot on differentiating and therapy from each other. And so I wanted my story to not be responding to his story that's or really answering thoughtful. questions about his story. And so we both kind of decided that. And so I'm actually really eager to get off here <laughs> and listen to his podcast. <laughs> And he did a good job and you've done a great job. But I, in his Facebook posts, there were people that, um, from your ward family that just talked about their love for both of you. And I just sense through those messages, how loved you are, Jesse, um, in your circle and the good you do and how much people love you and Braden. And it's really brave of you both to do this. Listeners, that's the end of my comments is, um, this was I never know what I'm getting into, listeners. We just start. I don't have like, you know, I haven't done a background check and know exactly what my guests are going to say. And I'm just sometimes stunned with um, the courage and insights and maturity and gifts of my guests. And you are one of those, Jesse. You are a thought leader. You are bright. You are courageous. Your voice needs to be heard far and wide in our faith community and and beyond. And this podcast will reach, you know, 20,000 people, but this podcast helps us create Zion and your courage to be on the podcast and share your stories. Very helpful for all of us. So thank you. Do you have anything else you'd like to share before we sign off? Thank you so much, Richard, for giving me this opportunity. Years ago, the place where I was living at the time had a special meeting for all the adults in our church congregation. I think there was some political issue at the time that was in the media and kind of at the social forefront, and that's why the meeting was being held. The leader who was speaking charged into a harsh commentary on LGBT folks. He spoke about Satan's attack on traditional families in no uncertain terms. To this day, I have no idea why I raised my hand to comment. He wasn't seeking comments, and I had no idea at the time that I was married to a gay person. I wasn't an activist or really somebody who stepped out of line ever. I was actually the good little colored girl that all the locals could count on to help them feel good about their own open-mindedness without being uncomfortable or needing to change anything. I can't remember exactly what I said, but I can tell you it was crumbs. 
I think I said something along the lines of that I felt like he was lumping all the ravening wolves and sheep's clothing together with the lost sheep. And that I didn't believe that every LGBTQ person was a ravening wolf and part of Satan's army. And I believe that the vast majority of them were probably lost sheep who were frustrated by the politicization of their lived experience. The leader was frustrated, the meeting continued, and nothing came of it. Years later, a friend who I had known since her birth reached out to me to thank me for that comment. She had recently come out and was living with her wife in a different city, but thought of that moment and wanted to reach out to me and thank me for unknowingly standing up for her. Guys, she deserved so much more than I gave. Oftentimes when we've been giving nothing to live on, we are ecstatically grateful for crumbs from the table. Had the righteous people who passed the Good Samaritan tossed him a coin or a crust, he would have been thankful. But that wasn't what the Lord asked them to do, and it's not what he has asked us to do. Listen to the scripture. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him and went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the morrow when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. That's a lot more than crumbs. I want to publicly apologize for crumbs seeming like a feast after the way you had been treated, Steen. I applaud all those like David Archuleta who have recognized their own worth enough to reject the crumbs. I am excited by all those who are remaining in the church and refusing to leave the table with any less than anyone else. Guys, I have heard way too many times, how can I show love to fill in the blank? My son, my daughter, my friend, etc. And keep my covenants. I don't know what covenants y'all have made in the temple or in the church, but I have made zero covenants that said anything about me not baking a cake for somebody, not attending somebody's wedding, not going out to dinner with somebody and their boyfriend or girlfriend, not having somebody over on Christmas morning to open gifts, like the two great commandments, love God, love your neighbor. Um, I feel like our friends, our family, even our kids already know how we feel and where we stand on these things. So when there's an opportunity to show love, it's not an opportunity to make a point. It's not an opportunity to teach them a lesson or to make sure they see what you want them to see. It's an opportunity to show love. And um, if we're confused about that, then we need to get back to Jesus and really study his words and his acts, because there's no way that an opportunity to show love like that could be misconstrued as anything but love and anything but discipleship um, of our Lord and Savior. Once again, thank you so much, Richard. Thank you guys for listening. Um, I really appreciate this opportunity to share my story. Thank you, Jesse Duncan. Um, Listeners, thank you for joining us and grateful for the spirit that's been here and so honored to have Jesse Duncan on the podcast. This is Jesse and Richard signing off for another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love.